are now entering the pain pod sponsored by the chronic pain association of canada are you ready to know what you don't know about chronic pain we're shining a light on the good the bad and the very ugly about living with pain in canada no hype no hysteria just the truth and now here's your host Anne-Marie Gatto Welcome to our listeners. It's a very exciting time for me to be part of the very first episode of The Pain Pod, brought to you by Canada's only national charity for chronic pain. Our guest this evening is Will McGregor, who's an MA candidate at York University and who has himself suffered from high-impact chronic pain in the past and has a keen interest in policy around chronic pain, disability, and health. He also takes time out from his busy schedule to help us at CPAC from time to time. And thank you, Will, for taking the time to join us this evening. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So we've invited Will here today to talk about a phrase and a phenomenon which has actually been part of his studies. Uh, the original author, whom I won't give away, in 1845 coined the term social murder. And I'll ask Will to explain this phenomenon to all of us who are listening so we can all be in the know. Sure. So uh, the term social murder uh, was coined by uh, Friedrich Engels um, in 1845 in his work. Um, I'm forgetting the exact title, I believe, on the working conditions in England um, at the time. Um, in essence, uh, the way that I conceive of, of his use of the term social murder is essentially when the elite, the ruling class, and and you know the, the ruling individuals and the governments of a society essentially construct a society in a way they make policy choices, they build systems um, that lead to um, the premature and what Engels terms unnatural death um, of especially societies um, kind of most marginalized and lowest individuals. Um, Engels particularly was talking at that point about the um, UK and the British working class. Um, the ones who are you know living and dying in mills in pretty horrible conditions right. um, at the time. So that's the kind of origin of the term, and it's you know it's still around and it's it's kind of um, coming back into use, which I find very interesting. Right. Um, I noticed myself if you if you do a simple search, which I did of the term social murder, there's an awful lot of articles that come up. Um, one that I picked out just just to mention this evening, just because it was local, was an article that I came across um, in the Star, and it was an opinion piece written by Dennis Raphael, who I found out um, is a professor of health policy and management at York University in Toronto. So there's a small world, and the piece was called "Social Murder and the Doug Ford Government." So. What this was about was, um, I'll just read a bit of it, bit of it briefly. It said, what, what is the relevance of this analysis for Ontario today? Well, Stats Canada documents that Canadian men in the lowest 20% of the income distribution are about 67% more likely to die in any given year than the wealthiest 20%. That's pretty shocking. For women, the figure is 52% more likely. And what do these people die of? Well, the professor gives lots of statistics on um, diseases that can and are fatal, such as heart disease and cancer and diabetes and respiratory illness. 
And some of the percentages are extremely high, especially for respiratory illness. I was shocked to see 88% for men and 83% uh, for women more likely to die uh, than their wealthy counterparts. So apparently StatsCan um, also is, is aware um, in these differences in health outcomes. And uh, the professor quotes StatsCan as saying, income influences health most directly through access to material resources, such as better quality food and shelter. And then the professor goes on to say, now any reasonable leader would do all they could to improve the financial situation of these at-risk for disease and death individuals. But instead, we see Doug Ford cancelling minimum wage uh, increases and reducing social assistance increases, etc. So Professor Raphael has articulated his opinion uh, that these cutbacks for the financially worse off are indeed a form of social murder, if I got the article straight. Back to you, Will. Yeah, so that's um, – yeah, yeah, I think he makes a very, a very cogent argument. Um, I so full disclosure, I should go on the record. Uh, professor Rayfield uh, is was a professor of mine. I took a political economy and health and equity course of his through the uh, health policy program um, up, up, up up at York, uh, and I know his work at this point relatively well. His most recent book, uh, I believe, it's the politics um, and the uh, the politics of health in the Canadian welfare state is very interesting. Um, he discusses a lot of these kind of concepts. Uh, political economy uh, and health, which is particularly obviously germane um, for any discussion of chronic pain. Um, yeah, so his his framework discussing um, the conceptualization of social murder um, is shared, uh, particularly in the UK context. Um, there was a very um, pro- there's a very prominent actually the shadow chancellor um, who you know in, in, in Canada would be the uh, the uh, finance critic. Um, for the for former uh, the Labour government um, had called the Grenville Fire, um, the, the Tower Fire. For anyone who knows, it was I believe it was um, essentially public housing um, project um, that caught fire. There were many many fatalities, a really really horrific tragedy. And in the investigations, had found, if I'm recalling this correctly, I, I'm going from memory here, mm-hmm. that essentially there were warnings all along the way to replace, particularly the cladding on the outside of the building, and the governments ignored those warnings. Um, and this uh, Labour shadow chancellor, whose name escapes me, um, went on BBC, went on record as calling this social murder. Um, so I think that kind of framework and idea, uh, because Ongles in his article um, makes the point uh, in, in his paper um, – makes the point that while it may not have the idea that the of, of murder in law, which requires, I believe, mens rea, requires malice. Um, premeditation. Premeditation, precisely. Um, the concept here is that these people are dead because of the result of government, because of government in action, government negligence, and government choices. And I think that's a, that framework, the idea of social murder and that these people have died premature and especially unnatural, quote unquote, deaths – um, as a result of the choices and structures of a society um, is very useful. There was um, actually just literally two weeks ago and the British Medical Journal um, published uh, an editorial by I think a doctor, um, Kamran Abbasi, um, labeling a number of COVID responses by major governments, particularly the United States and the United Kingdom, as, as, as arguably social murder because they have made deliberate choices um, that have led to the deaths, the unnecessary and unnatural deaths 
um, of much of their population. I mean, if you look at the death rates in countries like the United States and the UK, Brazil, um, versus Taiwan, New Zealand, um, you know, these different governments have different public policy responses to the coronavirus and to COVID. Um, but obviously the same. Um, and that has led directly to, in my opinion, uh, and it seems Dr. Abbasi's opinion, um, different rates of fatality, different rates of infection. Um, so the argument again could be made that, you know, these people are, are, have, are the receiving end of social murder, the victims of social murder. Um, so I, I find it as a student of this, I find it a very useful framework. Um, mm-hmm. and I believe a strong argument could be made. Um, and particularly in the health context, which is something I know that I'm very interested in. Right, right. Well, it's kind of neat that um, that you knew the professor because I didn't know that when I chose the article. I just chose it because I thought, oh, here's something local. So I chose that. And you've also chosen an article which is international. So uh, it seems like, a, a <clears throat> excuse me, this isn't going away anytime soon. And a, a lot of people are writing about it um, today. So, so we'll... In everything that we're talking about here, how does this concept, social murder, um, that came about in 1845, relate to the chronic pain uh, population today, or does it even? So I believe that there's a very strong argument to make that it does. Um, I think that's something that a lot of pain patients and pain advocates, that's something that obviously um, CPAC has a lot of experience with. Um, the kind of fallout of the 2017 opioid prescribing guidelines, uh, which is a particular research interest of mine. I wrote a paper um, on the guidelines and in particular the final two provisions um, around tapering um, and around uh, multimodal pain treatments uh, recommendations uh, as a alternative to opioid therapy. So in essence, uh, the way I, I conceive it is all experts, including uh, pain patients, Physicians, researchers, and Health Canada, the government of Canada, and I believe provincial governments as well, all will say that opioid therapy is a, an appropriate um, treatment option for many, many, many chronic pain patients. And for many of them, it's the only treatment option that is that is efficacious. Right. Um, I myself, am, I'm only here because of opioids. Um, I had severe, severe chronic pain. Um, I was on, I tried a number of medications and several different treatment options, uh, and it was uh, opioids in particular, a course of opioid therapy that allowed me to start doing very, very, very basic you know, physical therapy, and then eventually found other modalities that were helpful in the long run. But that transition period of opioids was was absolutely crucial for reducing pain, giving me a limited amount of function to eventually build on. And I was able to, after about two years transition off of opioid um, therapy, although recently I had to go back on it for a pretty severe shoulder injury. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things when you've been kind of chronically ill and chronically sick, um, Mm -hmm. you know that in every medication you're going to take will have side effects. It may not be pleasant, but it's a heck of a lot better than not having the medication. Um, so the situation for chronic pain in Canada, this is something that I believe very firmly in. I believe the 2017 opioid prescribing guidelines were problematic in their formation. If you read particularly, so I read the, the entire guidelines and I read the appendices for the two sections that I was going to critique in my paper. Uh, and they admit that their recommendations um, are weak. They're based on weak science. They admit this themselves. I think they, they it's like two studies with 73 patients 
um, particularly that, that that they cite for these recommendations. And it's also crucial to understand that. So they, they say that the two recommendations are essentially that individuals who are on opioid therapy should be offered um, a trial of tapering off. Um, essentially that if you are on opioid therapy and you're on high dose, um, you know, you should try if possible to taper off. Um, and to see how that goes. Now, they're very, very clear in the guidelines. They're like, look, as l- to try and taper down to the lowest, quote, effective, quote, uh, unquote, dose. That is crucial for understanding kind of the broader, what I consider a pain crisis in this country. Key word. Very, very, very key. And that has been ignored kind of all along the way. Now, the, the second recommendation, which is something that is a real – I think a failure, a public policy failure, is the guy. You know, these guidelines recommend um, multimodal pain treatment clinics and multimodal pain treatment centers, where essentially a pain patient who is on opioid therapy, um, who perhaps wants to transition off, wants to find uh, a different you know form of, of treatment, one that may not have side effects or, or uh, what have you, can go to a multidisciplinary treatment clinic where they'll offer osteopathy, physical therapy, you know, all these different, you know, everything from perhaps a just take to cannabis, a medical cannabis. Um, but you go where there are a wide number of practitioners who can offer you a whole bunch of different modes of treatment and that you as a pain patient could find the one that works for you. This is the idea that's present in the 2017 opioid prescribing guidelines. So that's all well and good. This is what they were written. It was a policy document. Um, Health Canada, kind of, I believe, put their, if I remember correctly, put their stamp of approval on it. Mm-hmm. Um, then, and this is a crucial distinction, it goes from um, you know the, the kind of the the, the university um, office uh, yes. and and seminar room to the provincial colleges. Now, this is a key key step in the process because the provincial colleges then take what are suggestions and they the authors of this um of the guidelines are very specific these are not recommendations they're not mandates they should be not become standards of practice the colleges in number of cases that cpac has discussed that a number of uh, people that i've discussed and i can provide sources for anyone who's interested have turned these into mandates um and that is where the real trouble began because this has resulted in patients being forced to taper completely off against their against their will without their consent. Um, they are not being offered a taper down to the lowest effective dose. They are being forced completely off their medication. And this is something that CPAC has documented, that CBC at times has documented. I've talked to a, uh, a professor um, here at, at Dow who's a pain specialist who has discussed it Um that is, you know, that that is that is a real situation that is happening. I believe there is more than enough documentation um, to make that argument. Right. I spoke with one patient a, a sure. while ago whose doctor, um, <clears throat> excuse me, made no bones about it that um, all the medication was going to be taken away, yeah. and um, this doctor told the patient that that this particular doctor had no control over it. It was the law, and those were the words he used: the law. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Uh, my understanding is what he has said was incorrect. Um, what it was was the mandates put down by his uh, his or her I, I don't know provincial college. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But you but unfortunately the doctor um, was forced a lumber of them been forced into the situation. This is something that I had I had actually wrote about in in, in the paper I'd written on this topic matter and talked to um, uh, this particular Dalhousie uh, medical school professor. 
Physicians have lost their licenses. They've been they, they they've lost their livelihoods. Uh, they're, they're scared. They're scared because these what were originally supposed to be just helpful suggestions for when you as a clinician are you know prescribing have become mandates. And if you go against these mandates by the colleges, people have lost their licenses. They've lost their livelihoods, and so they are scared. And so these they don't want to prescribe, and the ones they have under their watch, um, they don't. Yeah, they're they're scared to either continue with them, certainly not to increase them, um, and it and it depends. Not all, not all doctors are created equal, um, but it is, it is something that is there is a noticeable chilling effect on prescribing, um, and that is something that CPAC has documented. You know, this is this forced tapering um, has gotten so much, so much, so much worse. Now, this brings me into the second part of this, and this is the real public policy failure, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Guideline 10 of the 2017 Opioid Prescribing Guidelines um, specifically discussed, you know, offering multidisciplinary pain you know, treatment centers so that people who perhaps had a successful taper um, or as part of their original taper could perhaps find a different, um, you know, uh, another mode of treatment that perhaps worked for them. Maybe that was more effective than opioid therapy, um, less side effects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the problem is that it hasn't happened. These treatment centers have not been offered. They have not been opened. Um, funding for them has not been provided. Um, and essentially, the analogy I use that I think I, I brought this up uh, to, to you, Henry. The analogy I use is pain patients who rely on opioid therapy for management of their pain. It's like you know they're 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 rows at the end of the Titanic. They're clinging onto a scrap of wood in the middle of the North Atlantic in the middle of the winter in the middle of the night, and they are just trying trying to hold on. They're trying to survive. Trying uh, for to men, survive. Yeah. Trying to survive. I mean that's for if you have chronic pain, particularly the you know I, I term it medium to high impact chronic pain. You're you're hanging on by your fingernails some days, um, and and. So these people are, are cleaning these rafts and that opioid therapy is the only thing they, that, that they have that's efficacious. So now, um, you know, the institutions of the government of, um, you know, the, the healthcare come along and, and to my mind, they're in a, they're in, they're in a rescue steamer, they're in, they're in a rescue ship and they show up and they say, Hey, you, you know, you're clinging to this raft. Um, you know, it's, it's terrible. You still might freeze to death. You still might die. Um, what we're, you know, what we think is better is, uh, you should get off the raft and you should get into a nice, comfortable, um, lifeboat. And so pain patients, um, some of whom may say like, look, I've tried the life. <laughs> and that's of course where the analogy fails is, you know, they tried the lifeboat, it didn't work for them, et cetera, et cetera. But the, for those who want to, or being forced to try to get into lifeboat, they say, okay, all right, uh, I'll try the lifeboat. And then the, you know, Canadian government, the provincial governments, the colleges uh, say, no, well, okay, yeah, well, we were going to offer you a lifeboat, but we can't afford it. So we're just going to take, uh, you know, your, your piece of wood away. So now you're just going to be drowning in the middle of the Atlantic in the winter, in the middle of the night. Um, and mm-hmm. if you, and if you die, well, you know, we, 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 listen. Que sera. Que sera, you know, um, you, listen, if you stick, if you cling to a piece of wood in the middle of the North Atlantic, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the winter, you may die. There may be serious side effects of that. So we have to take that away from you. Um, and not offer, of course, they're not offering any replacement. And that's where, in my opinion, the broader policy failure comes in. And this is something that I have noticed, um, happens, the more I've kind of studied policy, the more you realize, and perhaps this is just my, my cynical, uh, approach, but 
if you offer governments and, and civil service and bureaucracies, et cetera, the choice between um, doing the easy thing, claiming victory and moving on, or doing the harder thing that will actually solve the issue and take a lot longer and require a lot more resources, they'll tend to do the first thing. Um, this actually happens in, there's a famous analogy with um, Canada building its national theater um, after the, the, the Massey report, I believe back in the 50s, but I, I, that's, that's a complete sidebar. So the situation in my mind for chronic pain patients in Canada, uh, particularly the ones who rely on opioid therapy, is very, very dire. That's something that, again, at CPAC has, has seen, I mean, story after story. There's a survey that was done, uh, a number, I believe, last year or the year before, um, is stark. It is mm-hmm. har- it's harrowing, frankly. Um, we are seeing- Shocking. Shocking. It is. Uh, that we see story after story of individuals, many of whom were stable- on opioid therapy, some of them for years de- or decades. Decades even, yes. Yeah. And now it's been taken away from them. And the crucial thing is, and this is, again, this is this is something I almost feel like jumping up and down and, and you know yelling into the wind. It has been taken away from them, but nothing has been put in place to replace it. And that is against the recommendations of the guidelines, by the way, like explicitly. Um, right. But so this, yeah. Th- not this to is mention wildly unethical. Oh, yeah, that is that that yeah, that goes without saying, but you know, if you're looking for ethical concerns when it comes to the treatment of chronic pain patients in Canada, unfortunately, in my opinion, you may be waiting a long time. I'm 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 pretty sour about the whole thing. And that's not to say there are incredible, you know, clinicians and practitioners that I have encountered along the way in my chronic pain journey. Um, but the structural choices made by um, you know, researchers made by governments, made by colleges, um, have really, in my opinion, exacerbated a lot of the issues that I faced and a lot of the issues that others, um, you know, like, like me who suffer from chronic pain face. So, right. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, um, I don't, I don't even, I'm at a loss for words here. I don't even have a word to describe it, but before this, this guideline came about, like this, this was not wanted. This was not asked for. This was not needed by the pain community or the actual pain doctors that were not even allowed to participate in it. There was no evidence ever to suggest that pain patients were the the people dying so quickly and suddenly from the illicit street drugs because the coroner's reports have never lied. Um, so you bring about something, and I think this, I I I think this is where you say, let's do the easy thing here. I mean, in, instead of tackling the real problem, which was that the street drug supply was is incredibly poisoned and those people need help. So instead of giving them a clean supply of heroin or pharmaceutical grade heroin or whatever it is they need to keep them alive, let's go after pain patients. That's something we can do. And we'll say we've done something. Does that Unfor- make sense? Yeah. Unfortunately, um, as I said, I'm, I, I'm a cynic. Um, one of the things about one of the one of the very few pleasant things about being a cynic is when you're wrong, you're pleasantly surprised. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the look, we know for a fact that um, Health Canada, in in their more recent uh, chronic pain task force reports, have said that there is a place for opioid therapy in chronic pain treatment in Canada. Uh, that many patients will require it. Um, and similarly, in other reports around the broader overdose crisis. They have also said the, I mean, titanic majority of overdose deaths are from illicit sources. Absolutely. Um, you know, they know this. We know this. All the researchers know this. It's something that I have encountered. 
I'm, I will not allege manipulation of the statistics. I will say that there is there have been choices in reports that I've read, particularly around this issue, where they juxtapose different statistics for, in my opinion, completely disparate topic matters. They will juxtapose um, hospitalizations for um, you know, op- opioid poisonings with numbers around chronic pain patients. Um, when you dig into the data and really do the research, you know that you know pain patients account for shocking minority, shocking minority of any of these issues around this. And then, yeah, the real cause of these overdose deaths is illicit, uh, illicit sources. And of course, broader, in my opinion, societal trends um, that have kind of lead people to struggle with addiction issues to begin with. And that's kind of something that Professor Rayfield's discussed. Um, you know, the political, uh, social determinants of health um, is right. a very useful framework. That, of course, is a much broader, deeper conversation about, um, you know, health outcomes, inequality, um, and what leads to, as you as you said at the beginning, those startling disparities in mortality between kind of the most privileged and the least privileged in Canadian society. Um, right. So, but yes, yeah, so to bring it back to the chronic pain issue, um, yeah, it's it's something that I see getting worse. The stories I see, I've seen in online forums for years now, years. It's been getting worse and worse and worse of people just being kicked off their medication. And part of the problem is, you know, chronic pain patients are among one of the most voiceless populations um, in this country. And so it's very, very difficult um, to get kind of investment from the public um, and then to get substantive change. And it's a really uphill battle. Right. And going back to those people that... um they already know there's nothing else. I mean, I can say I'm one of those people because I've lived in, in cities for a great deal of my life. And so I, I've had um, access to these um, inter, inter, uh, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary clinics, but yet there's nothing there that's been of any help for me because Precisely. I have a visceral pain syndrome. So there's nothing else there. I'm not a candidate for physical therapy or, and I've done the acupuncture route. It doesn't do anything, et cetera, et cetera. So for this particular pain, there is nothing else that will touch it that I'm aware of or that my doctors were ever aware of. So that still, you know, leaves me as one of the people, well, yeah, I might have access to those clinics, but unfortunately there's nothing there for me. And I've been through that time and time again. Um, So there's that. So if we go back to the phenomenon of social murder and the guidelines, I think that, well, I feel in my heart that, you know, we easily, CPAC, we we hear these things all the time, but um, easily I I can think of some real people examples. uh, But last year, actually, in 2020, um, we lost a, a beloved volunteer and also a dear friend. Um, both were tapered down to next to nothing and um, were suffering and suffering and suffering to no avail and no one was listening. And when the suffering just continued to increase, all they would ever get was an eye roll and as in, you're not getting any more pain meds. And to the point where no one ever did any investigating anymore. You know, it was just, I'm in pain, I'm in pain. Yeah, you're always in pain. You're not getting more goodbye. So to the point where these people's health was not even cared for anymore because the one and only thing on the agenda was getting rid of those medications. And then by the time both of these different people who lived in different areas of Canada could barely walk or get out of bed, they were both 
near near death. They they had both had a, a, a aggressive cancer throughout that was too far gone to treat. So maybe they might have been alive if someone would have done some investigation and found that earlier. Who knows? One had a systemic um infection because um, his diabetes went wild um, from his his pain not being well managed as it as it was in the past, and so we lost two very dear people but uh, but also the um, I'm, I'm thinking of the latest um, the latest suicide that I had heard about someone um, was explaining to me it was a dear relative of theirs who um, had been medically managed on their medications for I think probably over 20 years or more and everything was being taken away with nothing in its place of course and so this person, um, committed suicide in a way that no one should have to die. And, and I call this like, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think there's any other way to frame this other than to say that was a policy-driven suicide. What else is there? Yeah, and that is where the concept of social murder comes in. Um, this is basically what Angles was talking about um, when he say that the, you know, the, the ruling class, the ruling elite of society – put in place um, structures, put in place policies and decisions that lead to you know, the premature and in his opinion, quote, unnatural, end quote. And that's, so that unnatural is very important because what we are discussing here are not people that had chronic pain and there was a comorbidity or they passed away at the same time. Like we are talking about people who have been put in a position where they, yeah, they've taken their own lives. They have died um, because of their suffering. And their suffering is a consequence of their unmanaged pain. And their unmanaged pain for many, many of these people is a consequence of policy choices made by governments um, and policy choices made by governments that have affected how care was managed and care was rationed. Um, the stigma around chronic pain, which is another huge issue um, that, that – Which Health Canada has piled on. Has piled on. They, they piled have Piled yeah. on. It was. So I've, I've read both um, the most recent chronic pain task force reports, the first one and the second one. And there's a lot of very good rhetoric in that. Um, but I remember, okay, but I'm very, you know, and I'm interested, you know, I'm, I'm a student of public policy. And so it's like, all right, the rhetoric's very good. What are the funding commitments? At the end of the day, how much you know, is this funded? Is it budgeted for? When that happens, um, you know, if, if you're a, you know, a, a political science nerd like me, you know that a lot of governments will say a lot of lovely things, um, but what they fund kind of reveals their real policy choices and, and policy agenda. And that most recent task force report um, came with the provision, in which, of course, they admitted that, yeah, opioid therapy is will be the primary method of treatment for many, 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 many chronic pain patients. And they admit that, and everybody admits that because everybody knows it. Um, but in the new funding announced in that report was $2.7 million. Um, and it came, and this is this is something I read it, and I was, I it actually kind of made me really sad, frankly. Um, it came from a substance abuse fund. Now, for me, as someone who thinks about public policy and a political science perspective, what I'm thinking of is so. This sends a message to broader Canadian society when you make these kind of choices. If I was, you know, your, your you know, quote unquote, unquote, average Canadian, someone who's maybe picks up a newspaper, or they're scrolling through the news on, on, on their phone and they see, oh, there's a new report about, you know, chronic pain and they've announced new funding. Oh, okay. Maybe, you know, you're looking at the headlines. You say, oh, you know, X amount of money. I believe it was either 2.7 or 3.7 million. I don't know the figures in front of me. 
And this, you know, quote unquote, average Canadian sees that, oh, this money's coming from a substance abuse fund. Oh, those poor addicts, you know, those people with chronic pain, if they could just get off the medication, you know, if they could do some yoga, they would be better, you know. Right. And so it, it, it frames the issue of chronic pain again through a substance abuse lens. And that is something that to me is a, is a choice made by all these governments and it doubles down on the stigmatization. Ah, I was just going to use the term doubles down because the more the truth comes out about how, uh, how, how the original mess and, and, and um, tragedy had nothing to do with pain patients and their meds, how the more the truth comes out, the more they double down on that false narrative. It's just like, what on earth will it take for these people to admit the truth, admit that they were wrong, apologize to public pain patients across Canada, and do the right thing? You know, and as far as the the interdisciplinary clinics, like I believe that that is an absolute fantasy, and the reason why I believe that is because Canada is such a vast country geographically, and we've got a relatively small population, and people are very spread out. I I just can't see how that would work in any practical way. So I'm not saying don't strive for that, but I'm just saying that the way the country is set out, I think that everyone having access to that is is just a fantasy. It's just that. Yeah, it's it's a very uphill climb. Um, mm-hmm. I like to think so. This is something that I, yeah, I I, I, I when I think of public policy, um, nothing is outside the realm of possibility in my opinion, because a lot of the things that in this country we say, like, oh, we, oh blah, 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 we, we, you know, people sh- shake their jowls and look very concerned and say, we can't do that. They do this <laughs> in plenty of other countries. I mean, you look at the social democracies in Europe, they have robust social programs that are pipe dreams in this country. Um, yeah. So it can be done. It's, this is just the, the, the choices that governments make. Um, and we are, we are, yes, we are very geographically spread out. Mm-hmm. Um but even these treatment centers don't have to be another hospital. It can be, you know, a small adjunct at a regional clinic or a regional center. I don't think it has to be, you know, this big, 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 um, oh God. Uh, the know, big pain th- centers in Toronto, say. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and I went through one here. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in Halifax. I'm from Halifax. I went through um, the chronic, you know, the, the pain clinic here. Um, and I had, uh, I had very good doctors all along the way, very good practitioners, physiotherapists. I had a very good experience. I'm very, very, very lucky um, in that. It still took me 18 months to get in. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, that's – so I believe wow. – I'm trying to remember the statistics up top of my head. The average wait is something along the lines of like five to six months, but some people wait up to four years um, for access to these treatment centers that are available right now. Um, and this, of course, is in the context of the federal government in the guidelines saying, you know, we have to double, triple, quadruple down on these kind of treatment centers. Um, but I think a point that you made, and I, I actually want to want to call back to that, that I think that is so important and so many people don't understand this, is I remember vividly sitting in the room. I did the – it was a chronic pain self-management program through um, the pain clinic uh, here, here in Halifax. Mm-hmm. And so it was a number of pain patients kind of sitting around and all of us – you know, come from very different backgrounds, but we're all, you know, in a way united by this one thing that, that has brought us here. Yeah. And 
and I found, you know, very, very helpful to kind of know other, other people are, are going through this because when you're in pain, oftentimes you're suffering silently. But one of the things that was really striking to me from you know, a, a medical standpoint, from a health policy standpoint, was that almost every person in that room had had different reactions and experiences to different medications and to different treatment options. So some, one, one person there had been a medical cannabis user for, for years, maybe decades. You know, opioids didn't work for him. This didn't work for him. I had yes. tried medication X. I had a great reaction. This other person tried medication X. had a terrible reaction. So that is something where with chronic pain, in my opinion, this isn't a one-size-fits-all situation where what works for person A will not work for person B. Everyone's pain is different. Right. Correct. Which is which is the the farcical arbitrary number they come up with with the the dosage the daily limit dosage. Precisely. I mean, I'm I'm I <clears throat> I'm I think maybe barely five foot two, one hundred and ten. My partner is like six one two twenty. Are you going to tell me that whatever uh, you know our pain levels are, even if we could, even if they were similar, that we'd be taking the same amount of X, Y, or Z medication? Not likely. And it could even be the other way around because of uh, metabolism differences. You know, I could I could be in need of much more of a medication than he, even though mm -hmm. he's much bigger than me. You know, these arbitrary numbers are they're absurd. And and true pain doctors that you speak to, like real experts in the field, will tell you that straight out. This, yep. this is nonsense. There's no such thing as one size number fits all. But this has been pounded into the doctors. Mm -hmm. I mean, ter terrify them, who in turn terrify the patients, and and everybody's uh, running scared. And the patients are the ones suffering in the end. And nobody is taking responsibility for this. I agree completely. Um, yeah, the, the, I had a very, this is something that came up again in the research. I had a very, the great conversation was a, with a Dalhousie, um, medical school professor who was also a chronic pain specialist, um, mm -hmm. that this, the 90 milligrams morphine equivalent mm -hmm. is, and, and they, and, the, and that's the other thing that I find very disheartening about this is if you look in the fine print in the 2017 guidelines, they say, this is the rough number. Some people will require more, some people will require less. Um, but again, the policy translation, when it goes from conceptualization into enactment, the 90 milligram, okay, look for this. And there's an argument that 90 milligrams is also way too low anyway um, for the vast majority of chronic pain patients and that everybody is different. And, you know, mm -hmm. you know, a, a 90 pound, you know, grandmother may require a dose that would put a, you know, 255 pound running back, um, you know, com completely out of commission. Exactly. Um, that's the the alchemy about or anyone who's been on it. You know, there's t titrating into the right dose. Anyone who's been on like especially longer term opioid therapy, like I was, you you get to that kind of gold. I call it a Goldilocks zone, where you find just the right amount of dose that treats your pain. You know, you, you, your pain. If you go below that, your pain becomes more unmanaged. If you go above that, you start to get side effects. It's finding that particular dose, which a lot of the literature discusses. That's why they say, again, again, I feel like I'm jumping up and down, yelling in the wind. They suggest in the guidelines, if you offer a taper, find the lowest effective dose, um, mm -hmm. which has been ignored. Which um, might as well not even be there. Unfortunately, you're right. Um, the yeah. way that this policy has been enacted, um, frankly, the guide they've enacted the guidelines, but they haven't. They've enacted what the easy things to enact about the guidelines, but they've stayed away from the difficult things that, if nothing else, is costing us money. Uh, if I'm recalling correctly, chronic pain 
costs to the Canadian economy are in the tens of billions of dollars billions, every year. That's right. billions, billions and billions and billions. And there was a study out of Australia um, that demonstrated that every dollar spent on chronic pain, kind of education, on treatment, yielded um, about four and a half dollars to five dollars um, back in benefit down the line. So it's not a question of like, how can we afford to adequately treat chronic pain with these big centers? It's a question of how, how can we not how afford not to? Afford. Yeah, how Precisely. can we not afford to? Wow. Yeah. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. And now we all know about the concept of social murder. Mm-hmm. But but knowing all this and everything that is so upside down in this country, and I just, you know, the pendulum has swung so far in the wrong direction. I'm going to ask you, well, what do you think? Where do we go from here? So... That's a very long, a very difficult question. Um, okay, the Coles Notes version. <laughs> the Coles Notes version. Um, so the, the number one thing is I think that um, the guidelines, first off, the guidelines need to be seriously reexamined um, because if nothing else, they need to be enacted as written. Um, that doctors, physicians, clinicians, prescribers are not death, you know, afraid of losing their livelihoods, of losing their jobs, of losing their careers. Um, by frankly, you know, by, by going against the mandate set down by colleges, I think that's that's a good first step. Um, the second, I mean, an even better step would be to completely throw out those guidelines and actually do, you know, science-based, reality-based guidelines. I think there's some movement towards that in the United now States. There's a plan. There's there's a lovely plan. Um, mm-hmm. I do believe, and so I I am in favor of the multimodal pain treatment centers. Mm-hmm. Um, the gold standard. Yeah, the gold standard. So I am in favor of that. Those need to be funded. Those need to be funded adequately. Um, we can do this. Like we, as I said, this isn't, you know, people are going to, you know, harump harumph and, and shake their jowls and say they can't afford it. Um, first off, I think that's nonsense. As I said, you know, you yield benefit down the line. But it's also that, you know, other jurisdictions, other countries do this and have better outcomes. Um, I believe there's a place for multimodal trained p- tr- um, pain treatment centers um, for those who wish, perhaps for opioid therapy now, who wish to taper off and try a different modality, go for it. If you find something that has, you know, maybe less side effects or is more effective, great. But the, the core of it, there needs to be a recognition publicly um, that opioid therapy has a place in pain treatment, that there are hundreds and thousands of Canadians who rely on this medication to live their lives, to hug their kids, to go to work, to, to just get, even just get through the day. Um, right. And there needs to, that needs to be, uh, have a place in any kind of multidisciplinary pain treatment strategy. Uh, and that needs to be recognized because that's something that I believe, again, all this discussion of stigmatization um, of chronic pain patients in the much broader overdose crisis has caused harms. So there's very little political cost to governments for the policies that they've enacted that have you know, really been so harmful to these patients and are, again, arguably, if you look at Angle's definition, if you read the, the art, recent article in the BMJ, um, you know, the, the, the conceptualization, the argument about social murder is a very active one. If you look at what has happened to chronic pain patients who have been forced off these medications, who have been uh, without their consent, um, who have been lost their jobs, they've lost their homes, they've lost, you know, they're not they're able to their get out lives. of bed, their lives. And, the, and so they've lost their lives as a direct result of the choices that society makes. Um, and so many people are going to say, oh, that sounds you know, a little extreme, a little extreme. Is it? These it's people, not extreme. It's That's not reality. Extreme. 
It's not it extreme. Is. We hear about it all the time. CPAC figures there's roughly about 2 million Canadians that rely on opiate medications because there's just nothing else. And, and, and most of these people have run the gamut of the other treatments. So that's all that's left. Like for someone like me who has a condition that it's just not, it's not conducive to these other things. So yeah. about 2 million of us is, is, is what CPAC figures. Well, thank you so much. I, I find this such an interesting and horrifying topic, by the way. Um, choices all about choices isn't it and i want to thank you again well for for sharing your learning with us and we hope that you keep keep us posted in your studies and we all wish you the best in your career and uh, we we really need your help for reform (laughs) and you've given us a lot to think about so thanks again for your time well tonight enjoy the rest of the evening you too thank that uh thanks for having me okay bye-bye bye-bye Thanks for tuning in to The Pain Pod. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you never miss a future show. Share this with your friends, and if you're so inclined, give us that five-star review and comment. We hope these podcasts motivate you to get involved with us at chronicpaincanada.com. Until next time!